Rafa Nadal's career record at Grand Slams. You, you may not have realized this, but he has a losing record at Grand Slams. He's only 21 and 42. What do you mean winning the whole thing? I'm losing record. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of disappointing, right? Should be at least 500. <laughs> so the 63 Grand Slams at Nadal's entered, he's only managed to win 21 of them. Yes, which is actually one out of three. I think he's been in 29 finals, so he's 21 and 8 in finals now. Nearly half the times he enters a Grand Slam tournament, he reaches the final, <laughs> which is pretty obscene. You know, and this is this is part of why I find him so annoying, right? It's just like he yeah. is so relentless. He always wins. It seems like, and you know, and the crowd like it was the we'll have to talk about the crowd dynamics of that match because you know they really got behind him. They did. We'll have to talk about the crowd throughout the whole tournament. I feel like. As in, uh, not only in that match, and uh, it must have been such an advantage that Nadal had compared to Daniil. Um, the Sioux, the, the Sioux um, chant that sounds like a boo, the, the crowd that Kyrgios were that brought attracted or who were attracted to Kyrgios, the disrespect that I think Kyrgios even encouraged from the crowd. Um, and just the general rowdiness and parochialness and I think we'll have to talk about, okay, there's tennis etiquette, mm -hmm. there's an established tennis etiquette and respect that we, you know, is sort of a code of conduct that, that you know as a tennis crowd you have to adhere to, um, and that's been really challenged at this Australian Open more than any other tournament that I can think of. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I remember after um, the United States decided that COVID was over, there seemed to be a lot of incidents at NBA games where fans were throwing things onto the court or like like at players as they were exiting the court after a game. Yeah. And it made the news because it was like, is this some weird form of desocialization that happened because of COVID, because of people being shut up in their homes like for a while where they start to like think that certain social behaviors are okay because they're not actually getting the feedback regularly that they're not. So it's kind of interesting that you're observing that in the Aussie. I, I mean, not being there, it's hard to kind of get a sense for whether it was really rowdier or more obnoxious than than usual. I mean, obviously that you know we got to talk about the special K's run to the finals. Nick Kyrgios, Grand Slam champion, the pride of Australia. You know, there's no no way around it. Me and Thanasi are definitely uh, role models to the youth in Australia. And if uh, if our listeners could see your chagrin. I mean, I, I I have a I have a you know an expression of I'm not I'm not sure I, about that you know because I I was actually before this tournament began I was for Curios's showmanship and mm. the entertainment that he brought to the um, to the court, but it's just too often now he's disappointed me with crossing the line regarding respect for the referees and the opponents and even the crowd yeah he's a 
flawed human being with good and bad, like all of us. But I think you could still make an argument that he's good for the game, the drama that he brings and stuff like that. Whatever you think of him personally, mm-hmm. like let's continue to have that debate. Let's continue to critique him. And he, he shouldn't be untouchable in press conferences where he just runs the show and refuses to answer any questions that he doesn't want to answer because it doesn't suit him. Um, he, he, he needs to be interrogated for sure, but come on, calling, like riling up the crowd between Michael Venus's first and second serve after the umpires already said, can we please have some silence, you know, before the serve and they were under siege Venus and Pertz in that quarterfinal and doubles. They were absolutely under siege. Every errant ball toss that Michael Venus made was cheered by the crowd, every fault was cheered, or, you know, and yes, that's a, that's a no-no in tennis etiquette, right? Yeah, it's pretty obnoxious. I mean, I, I suppose that sort of stuff happens at Davis Cup events or, you know, traditionally at like Davis Cup home ties where like some of the, the classical tennis etiquette stuff goes out the window because you get that much more parochial audience, you know, so, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like I mean Nick Kyrgios is sort of he's a walking contradiction, and it seems like you know every five minutes he's giving you a reason to love or hate him, yeah. And it, it certainly in my book makes it difficult to really fully embrace him as somebody you know as like I don't know he's kind of a wild card in the sport. He's like he's a joker. He you don't know what you're gonna get. He could. He could go out there and upset Rafa Nadal, or he could just throw a temper tantrum, smash his racket, and walk off the court. He's sort of out of control in a way, but then there's those like rays of sunshine that kind of cut through sometime, and obviously the joy that is in there sometimes. I wouldn't describe him as a joyful person, but I don't know. I mean, this is part of why doubles perhaps suited him so well and team events suit him is because he's playing for something that's not just himself. He he was playing this event with his childhood buddy in front of a home crowd. And, you know, he was delighting in the fact that the crowd was like so on his side and that, yep. you know, he could bring this this edge and this energy that you don't see in doubles. I mean, he made he made the doubles tournament more compelling than it would be otherwise, which is another reason to feel conflicted about it, because it's like. Hey, actually, people were paying attention to doubles. They were cutting away from singles matches to to show the doubles in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. And like, but but the 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 lines that he crossed for me, imitating Venus's Aaron Baltos, and like actually going, yeah. uh, look how uncoordinated you are. Ha ha ha! Look at your stupid Baltos. You know, um, and. You know, both Kokonakis and Kyrgios were, had the audacity to complain to the chair umpire that he was doing that on purpose so that he could beat the serve clock, right? Because as you know, if you begin your service motion, the, um, the right. clock stops, right? So you could be rushing and you could just throw up a ball and then go, okay, that wasn't my real serve. Now I've got all the time I want. But that wasn't, that wasn't the case. And I think the ball toss thing was like, You've got the whole crowd cheering at every bad thing that you do. There's no silence. There's no silence before the beginning of the surf. So but then like to think, you know, to, for them to try and capitalize on that, I just thought it was really, it was really mean spirited. For sure. And then, 
yeah, and then and they know they've been playing tennis their whole lives. They know you got to keep silent, uh, and it's one thing they can't control the crowd, right? But it's another thing for their for Venus to be throwing up his first serve. It's it's a fault. Everyone cheers. Everyone's cheering, cheering really loudly. Now he's got a precious second serve that he needs to make, and then in the middle of that. Kyrgios walks around the court and starts whipping up with his hands. Come on, cheer more, cheer more. Let's interrupt him more. Let's interrupt his con- concentration even more. Now, that's his argument to that is going to be, it's, you know, you know I'm out there to create a show. It's theater. Let's have mm-hmm. some fun with it. Right. Um, but that's unfair. I, that, I, that verge is on cheating for me because it's... Um, it's something that umpires asking, don't, don't cheer, like don't cheer, but, uh, don't make any noise between their serves. Right. And they've had to say that time and time again during this tournament in a lot of games. Right. That's one thing. Yeah. yeah but then when you, then you incite the crowd to do it more as the opponent, that, that's wrong. That's to me, that's wrong. Yeah. I mean, the, the behavior is so fundamentally bratty and childish, you know, he's like, he plays by rules that he, you know, he plays by his own rules, right? It, this is this is almost something like Donald Trump-esque about it. It's like, it's okay for him to mock other people or like, you know, behave in such a manner, but it's not, you know, but other people have, he has totally different standards for other other folks. You know, he'll complain yeah. about somebody else trying to take advantage of the situation or like some perceived unfairness. Absolutely. And it's just such a like, it's such a juvenile attitude and it's so, yeah, I don't know that, that diminishes the sport, right? It like makes the, sh- the sport into a sideshow. And I'm not somebody who's like so attached to every aspect of tennis etiquette that, you know, I, I can't see the, the potential and, you know, sometimes kind of relaxing all of that and, you know, l- letting, letting some of this stuff fly. But it also shows how like completely in a, incapable of controlling matches the the umpires tend to be, you know, it's like, they just, you know, what are they going to do? Like, I mean, you, you feel like you would be risking starting a riot if you like penalized Kyrios heavily in that, in that situation, you know, or like. I would have loved to be the chair umpire, chair umpire in that, um, a quarterfinal with Pitts and Venus against Kyrios and Kokonakis, because when he did that, when he whipped up the crowd during, between the first and second serves, I would have given him a warning and the commentators were like, surely he's going to get a warning here. Yeah. These were Australian commentators as well, you know, rooting for, and they, they were like, this is, this is crossing the line. Yeah. I would have given him a warning and I would have kept articulating, um, please silence, um, as the players are serving. Um, but that happened a little bit. The umpire actually told Venus that he, he couldn't just keep missing his ball talks. And Venus was like, I don't want to hear that from you. That is wrong. That's, you know, you, it's not, it's a, the umpire was conf- actually confused about that rule. And that's why there was even more controversy throughout the match about, um, uh, how, how players were using the serve clock, which is an, another whole thing. When the crowd is being so rowdy, the umpires need to also give extra time for the serve clock to begin. Yeah. And I think they did that in that quarterfinal. Um, the chair umpire started, waited for Venus to go and get his towel and then, then started the clock. Um, I think Kyrgios noticed that and was like, this is so unfair. 
on what you're doing here. But of course, he had every advantage with the way the crowd was um, supporting him. So, you know, it was that double standard that you're talking about. Yep. But yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm with you, Dave. I, I don't think, um, you know, we should cling to, to the etiquette. Uh, actually, my friend um, Matt was, was saying, what's this stuffy etiquette that you cling, you're clinging to here yeah. on tennis? Like, why, what's the argument for, like, you know, against Kyrgios doing all this, this, stuff, this stuff? It happens in all other sports. Happens in all other sports, but the crowd is constantly talking. You know, you mentioned the NBA in an NBA game. You know, the crowd can boo all the time during the free throws. They can be calling out all the time. Mm-hmm. Why in tennis do we get this special silence? This you know, oh, you have to you know give, give so much respect. And my my counter to that is, tennis has developed with a culture of respect. You know, and um, fairness. And that's something to be cherished, not something to be thrown away um, just because other sports are like that. Uh, yeah, that's a really great point, Matt. I completely agree. I, you know, I, I think I appreciate the aesthetic of tennis, the fact that it is, you know, generally a quieter sport that the, you know, that the crowd is asked to participate in this way and kind of like keep the proceedings relatively calm and you know and like focused it's like you go to a tennis match live and you're there to actually watch the sport you're not there to be distracted by loud music and cheerleaders and sideshows and trash talking and nonsense it's like the game is the thing and that's you know it doesn't have to be that way strictly you could have the game going on with constant noise as you as you say like it, it, there's there's no reason that the game that these players couldn't excel if the the racket was constant but um yeah i love the perspective that that it really is about how the sport is rooted in this this kind of um respectful attitude you know you have this often single combat um or you know in doubles case i guess it's a uh, double combat um <laughs> uh between these competitors and you know at the end of the match they shake hands they you know there's there's a certain kind of decorum that I really I've come to appreciate more as I've gotten older and yeah maybe in the in the culture the broader culture these days that sort of stuff is not really that interesting by default you know it's like eh, I'm more interested in sports where it's like win at all cost like you know you've put your body and your your energy out there you put yourself on the line it's all you know physical and and intense but like tennis doesn't have to be like other sports and i you know i i don't know it's but right there are times where i would like to see changes like like you know like the whole sideshow with um sitsipas's theoretical coaching from his father yeah you know i guess his father sits in the front row and is you know, constantly fidgeting and making gestures and probably saying things under his mask in Greek, you know, and Stefano says that he doesn't listen to him. Uh, you know, like he's just talking, he can't help himself. And that's kind of how he is. Um, but they, they, you know, they got, they received three warnings, uh, which were accompanied by fines throughout the tournament. And the, the most recent one was in his semifinal against Medvedev after, uh, Medvedev lost the second set and absolutely exploded at the the umpire which is you know again like another another character of contradictions medvedev you know he yeah 
And I mean, in that moment, he was as ugly as as Nick Kyrgios. You know, he was asking the umpire, if he, you know, he's yelling at the umpire very directly, demanding that he look at him, asking if he was stupid. He was McEnroe-esque. Answer the question, jerk. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, you know, all of that because Tsitsipas might have been like Tsitsipas's dad, Apostolos, might have said like, hey, move up a little bit on the second serve, you know, like like that would determine the outcome of the match, you know, like. Yeah. Um, but it's all I guess it's only irritating because it is the rule. If it wasn't a rule and the coaches could call out whatever they want. I mean, it, would it diminish the sport? You know, once again, we have this idea, this almost like platonic ideal of of single combat. You know, they're out there on on their own, quote unquote. They have to figure out everything for themselves. And I kind of like that, you know, in a romantic sense. But in reality, I don't think it would actually affect the quality of play at all if people could just get coaching while the game's happening. Yeah. So what? That happens in that happens in other sports and in a way that I don't I don't think makes them worse, <laughs> you know. There's a yeah, there's a few things going on in what you just mentioned, Dave. I guess firstly to address the coaching stuff. Um yeah, like I, I, I think the only reason that Sitsipas got a coaching warning there was possibly because uh Medvedev complained. Yeah. And um because it'd be very hard, and maybe on reputation as well, because the umpire would know that it's probably, that's probably what um, Apostolos is doing. But the only way you're going to know, I mean, he's wearing a mask, right? And, the, and the Medvedev was saying, do you speak Greek? To the, to, I don't know if the umpire speaks Greek. Um, who was it? Was it Damien Demosois? Well, I, I don't remember, but I do remember that they were they had positioned another umpire who was not calling the match who did speak Greek. Oh yeah, the tournament referee was uh was was nearby, yes, yeah, so they could have communicated that right that way. But yeah, the argument against coaching would be that, you know, it's the single player out there and you need to you know, it's how much can you remember your coaching and execute at the time. So your mental fortitude and your, your poise and stuff. If players could always look to their box and receive coaching, um, as limited as the, you know, the few words that you'd be able to say between points and the hand gestures that you'd be able to get in, in that limited time, um, would be, uh, it, it would, it would change the game a bit and we'd have to, we have to consider what that would do. But the other thing I wanted to mention was. You know, you're talking about etiquette and how much the crowd is part of the game. I think that is such a good point. Like when we go to a tennis match live, we are invited to participate. We're invited to not boo when the opponent makes them. I mean, not cheer for the for the mistakes, not cheer for a double fault, you know, not cheer for a, a missed smash or a forehand dumped into the net that you really should have made. It's great, you know, we get to choose to remain silent and respectful in those moments. And then we get to choose to cheer when it's a good point. And we get to choose to cheer for the player we're not rooting for when they hit a good shot. And that to me, you know, and sure, you know, you, you know when you're in a match who the crowd is going for because the cheers are louder for the home favorite or the more popular player. But the other players still get some cheers too. And that's all Daniil wanted. He just wanted a bit of fairness. He wanted like some support, some 
appreciation for the good play that he was doing. And that for, for the underdog or for the non-favorite in, in a match, that's often enough. As long as I'm, you know, I feel like I'm respected out there. I don't need to be the favorite. Yeah. Being treated fairly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It was interesting in his post-match presser, which I finally got around to watching today and was really pretty striking. Um, there were a couple times where somebody in the press would say, Hey, uh, Congratulations, Daniil, on a you know a great tournament. He was, and he was very sincere in his gratitude for that. Yeah, it was just like, like he, he you know, I think you're out there in this crucible of where ninety five percent of the crowd plus is rooting like in this really intense fashion for their really intense hero, and. I mean, that's why I was saying in our side conversation, like, I thought he handled it extremely well. I mean, especially to get that two set lead at the, you know, at the start of the match, come out the way he did. And he still was competing gamely. It's not like he went off the rails in losing that match. I mean, he had a couple wobbly moments, but yeah, I mean, I guess that the big, um, the big to do is about some of the stuff he said in that presser, you know, where he's saying like, you know, kind of the, the dream you know, that he had as a kid kind of died a little bit today. I don't know, I'll try to keep it short. Story of a young kid who dreamed about about big things in tennis. So when I picked up a record when I was six years old, I mean, then the time goes fast when you're like 12. I was just, you know, practicing, playing some Russian tournaments. And of course, you're watching Grand Slams on the TV, big, big stars playing, fans supporting, and you dream of being there. I think the big part for every junior is playing a junior Grand Slam. That's where you can see the pros in US Open. You actually uh, eat in the restaurant with them and some small like things like this. There are people coming to support you, even if probably they don't really know who you are, but there are people supporting juniors. And it's great moments. Um, and that's that's a moment where you're like, wow, I want to be there in this, uh, in this Grand Slams playing uh, yeah, against the best... Uh, People in the world, I remember when I went to, to US Open, I saw John Isner passing by and I was like, wow, he's so huge. He's bigger than on, uh, on the TV. And it's just uh, nice moments. There are some moments in my career where I think this kid was doubting if he should continue to dream about these big things or not. I remember one, it was, uh, I lost a really tough match uh, two times in Roland Garros actually. I remember I lost to Benjamin Bonzi, who's in top 100 now. There was, if I'm not mistaken, one Russian journalist in the room. I was like, really? It's a Grand Slam? Or like I was, I think I was close to being top 50, really young. I was like, okay, that's surprising. Then I remember a tough loss to Pierre Gerbert, 2-0 up in the sets. Uh, actually, amazing match. He played amazing. Uh, and I like these matches, that's why I like tennis. I, I was on the edge of breaking top 10. Came in the press, I was a little bit yeah, frustrated with the fans and everything. And so um, it's funny because I wanted to keep it short, so I wanted to like play, like answer with two words or anything. There was one journalist, um, I think Italian, he asked me something, I answered two words, no more question. There were some Russians, they asked me some things. Again, the kid was doubting if he should continue of dreaming big. Just talking about few moments where the kid stopped dreaming, and today was one of them. I'm not gonna really tell why. So from now on, I'm playing for myself, for my family, to provide my family, um, f 
for people that trust in me, uh, of course for all the Russians because I feel a lot of support there. Um, I'm gonna say it like this, so if, if there is a tournament on hard courts in Moscow uh, before uh, Roland Garros or Wimbledon, I'm gonna go there, even if I miss a Wimbledon or Roland Garros or whatever. The kid stopped dreaming, the kid uh, is gonna play for himself, and uh, that's it. That's my story. You take it. You take any one's one thing in isolation, and you could make it sound like he's ready to just like go play play for for money in in Moscow at every opportunity he gets, and just skip all the slams or whatever. But then. You know, a few sentences, you know, a few questions later, he's like, I'm going to be back out here competing and trying my hardest to win these things. And I'm going to work even harder to try to be uh, yeah, a champion of uh, some of these great tournaments one day. So to me, I, I don't have any doubt that he's going to continue to to try. I think Alex was, you know, wasn't so sure. You know, he's try- taking him at his word in that in that moment that maybe he's feeling so defeated by. Yeah. By that, because I, I think you know Medvedev's so cerebral, and he's not—he's not like an aesthetically beautiful player in the way other players are uh, perceived. No, he's kind of a unconventional, kind of uh, funky kind of uh, a player. Is you know what, what the analysts say? Yeah, he's—he's he's like a freaky Gumby type. You know, I mean, he's. If you're rooting for him, like I, I, you know, I root for him probably as much as I root against him. So I do root for him sometimes. There's more than I can say for Rafa, and uh, and like I, you know, when you're rooting for him, like man, he is sensational at times. Like the balls he gets to that you think he has no business getting to, the shots he hits that are like, you know, balls that are basically already past him, and somehow he contorts his body and manages to like hit this you know, scorching flat return shot, you know, he, he can be exciting. And I think, you know, maybe his expectations are a little unrealistic because I don't know. He's a Grand Slam champion already. He is. And like, you know, but I'm saying like, in terms of like getting that kind of equal crowd support, like, like really being taken seriously, like people are like, I want to go see Medvedev win another title. I mean, he's won one and the guy who's playing at 120. So there's, there's a different, relationship that people have and it's it's to be expected you know i i it is it is and uh, and he mentioned also uh, um being russian yeah you think about the cold war think about you know and i think this is totally unfair because i think um the revolution in 1917 it paved the way for the greatest kind of direct democracy and fairness in society that we've ever seen um however you know, it was co-opted by Stalinism and, and then we had the, the Cold War and then the gulags and everything. And, and so people are quite, you know, I think on a very basic level um, amongst, you know, a, a large group of people because of all the propaganda, uh, Western capitalism, good, Russian, um, yeah, oligarchy. Now, it's an oligarchy now, but for, you know, and the, but the whole history of the 20th century in in Russia, bad. Yeah, you know, and so you know, he could he can be very easily seen as the villain, but he's such a, you know, he's a human being, he's an intelligent person, 
Um, he's someone that, yeah, that should be followed and supported. Yevgeny Kafelnikov, who I don't ever think became number one himself, but he, um, he was certainly a top five Russian player, says he'll definitely become number one, Daniil. Um, no doubt about that. And becoming the number one player in the world will do a lot for his confidence. I'm sure, I agree, I'm sure that will happen. Yeah, I, I think he's basically, he, I think he just has to play Rotterdam or something, or maybe he has to win Rotterdam. It's, he's like, he and Djokovic are neck and neck at this moment in time. So, um, although I, I guess it maybe you know, if he doesn't play that tournament or he loses early, or I mean, maybe it could go the other way. Djokovic plays the French and he's got a lot of points to defend. I, I think it's inevitable. And I think he is the number one player in the world right now. Um, you know, certainly. Well, over the why past did he lose? Months, in that case, David, what? How do you explain him losing in the final of the Australian Open? I mean, I think it was nip and tuck. I mean, I think that final could have gone either way, and I yeah. don't think that losing it necessarily. Like, I think his results have been more consistent. Rafa, you know, I mean, he's on another level when he's healthy, and he was healthy throughout the tournament. He, you know, I mean, he had a couple matches where he he was suffering physically because of the conditions, and that was like a little un Rafa like. But not in that final. He was rock solid. He was pure, you know, vintage Rafa. And so, but yeah, I mean, when you're talking about number one player in the world, I was trying to explain this a little bit to Molly's kids because it's such a, it's kind of a strange concept. Like, well, we have this, you know, there's like a series of ranking points and they accumulate over a one year period. And so therefore, you know, like, but who's the best player in the world? It's like, well, it's actually Novak Djokovic, but he's not here um, but then again, you know, Daniil Medvedev is almost there. You know, so based on ranking, you could say that Daniil is the number one player. I mean, the number one player is not always even a Grand Slam champion. I mean, we've seen that on the on the women's side. I remember Caroline Wozniacki was number one for a long period of time without winning slams. And she did never won a slam. She finally did eventually, but... <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like... You know, it's just, it's a, it's a game, it's a meta game, you know, and it, it does have status because it does mean something. It means you're winning tournaments. You're winning a lot of matches against pros and, uh, but it doesn't factor in the quality of the competition, right? That's, that's why you have these other ranking mechanisms like ELO that, that try to, you know, calculate like based on the strength of your opponent, like the quality of your wins and how that kind of sorts out. Yeah. International football is like that. The FIFA rankings, weight your victory if you're uh, if you're Spain and you beat um, the Faroe Islands in European qualifying, you're not <laughs> yeah, going to win a matter. lot of points. But if you're <laughs> yeah. if you're the Faroe Islands and somehow a miracle happens and you beat Spain, you would accumulate a lot of points for that victory. I mean, it does. It is a little bit like that in tennis, just because the tournaments, like the one thousands and the five hundreds. Are probably going to attract more top players than a 250 or a challenger. Yeah. So there are more points on offer, but it doesn't account for the individual. You know, you beat Federer in a first round match and you're only getting like 15 points or ranking points for a first round victory. Yeah. It, it's a quirk of the system, but I. I think it, you know, it introduces some randomness and, uh, I mean, there's randomness in the draw inherently. So no matter what tournament yeah. you enter, especially if you're an unseated, unranked player, you, you know, you could be up against any kind of competition. So, you know, I feel like the rankings tend to, tend to tell you quite a bit, actually, you know, they're telling you a story about the, 
you know, the players that have performed well over the last year. And, um, you know, we do put a lot of emphasis on going deep into tournaments and winning titles. Um, there was, I, I can't remember where this was. I, I, oh, I think it was in that book by Rowan Ricardo Phillips that I read the circuit where he was, he was speculating like, would, would somebody rather win one match, like a first round match against one of the all time greats, Federer, Serena Williams, or would they rather win like a 250 level event? And he was saying that his friends would rather, you know, like, like almost universally would rather win a tournament than beat a legend. And I, you know, like for me, I was like, no way I would, if I, if I could choose one, I would, you know, that's the, the story you would tell your kids. Not that like, oh, I won ATP Istanbul once. Uh, it's I beat the greatest player of all time or one, arguably you one of the greatest players of all time. Mm. You would, your ranking for winning a 250, you'd get 250 ranking points. And for, you know, beating in the first round, depending on the tournament, you'd get like 20 points or yeah. something like <laughs> yeah. that. So your ranking would, you know, you could say, hey, I was in the top 100 or, you know, maybe a winning a 250 would get you up. That's true. To a much higher, higher number. Meaning um, you'd be like, I was number 600 in the world, but I did beat Federer once. Um how how would you how where would you go which would you prefer? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. If you beat Roger Federer, you know you're gonna have to do a lot of press. There's a lot of uh, like you know a lot of attention just for one match. Winning a tournament, you gotta win multiple matches, right? So, yeah, I guess I would. You know, if I if I was a pro, I would want. Rather than just winning one high-profile match, which which be very, this is very enticing, a very enticing prospect. <laughs> but the other thing is, you know, having a little more consistency gives you more access to the tournaments regularly. Gets you around the pros, you know, you know, get gets you into the training rooms, gets you hitting partners, gets you, you know, traveling on the circuit a bit more. And to me, that's that's what would be. Even if you could just do that for a couple of years and or or six months, you know, having that experience rather than one match, um, I don't know. It, it, I think both choices are valid. One day of glory, you know, one day of like one perfect day, like yeah. the Lou Reed song, you know. Um, just a perfect day. Drink sangria in the park, and then later. When it gets dark, we go home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it, I spend it with you, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that song was about heroin addiction, um, by the way. Perfect day. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful song, though. Um, yeah. It, I feel like the winning the 250 is like the, the careerist's choice. You know, it's like, I actually wish I could play tennis professionally just for a, a little while a year like doing that would ensure that um the other is just more of a fantasy so that's probably why why i'm attracted to it just like mm. one one golden shining moment would be nice um you know I'll, I'll i'll i pretty much am happy if i can get the ball over the net so you know um lowered expectations at this point in my life you certainly can do that david i've seen it <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's uh, you know, I don't I haven't I haven't practiced enough to to ever really get consistently decent. Um I was actually hitting the ball 
around with with Molly this weekend just very briefly we brought the kids out with rack with their rackets so we didn't have adult rackets I only had a kids racket and like everything was going in I was like maybe I should just use a kids racket the stick is is short you know it felt like I was in total control um yeah yeah um probably not not gonna get me onto the ATP tour but um it was it like felt really good you know like just to hit the ball around for five minutes was I hadn't done that in quite a while so well, good on you. Yeah, there's some advantage to a shorter racket. Hey, um, we've talked about the men. We talked about Nadal's incredible, his mental fortitude and tenacity, and I think also the crowd, big factors, but, you know, just amazing that he found a way to come back from injury, COVID, and had limited practice. Yeah. He was, he was saying that he did yeah, hardly practiced. Yeah, and uh, which... You know, Medvedev was admiring, but I can't help but think he would have been a, a little bit annoyed by that. I don't know. <laughs> you asshole. Medvedev seemed to have a, he seemed to have a genuine appreciation for those greats and what they do. And he was like, I can't complain about my performance. Like I got beaten by a legend. Yeah, he wasn't bitter. That was nice to see. He wasn't bitter. No, he wasn't bitter. It wasn't like it got taken away from him by a, by a player who was just that much better when it really counted and that's that's the greatness of these guys and and rafa on this particular day and now he he has the most slams um and you know it's un, it's undeniable how how good he is you know um good it feels like it's underselling it to even use the word good <laughs> you know like like you have like it's unfair to not reach for a superlative like he's astounding is unbelievable yeah there's, there's no there's no way to really comprehend it it, it seems like an impossible t- task what what he's accomplished and uh you know good on him i mean i i can't it, it seems like there's just no situation where i'm ever going to really truly embrace him but i do um you know i appreciate what he brings and you know i like rooting why, against him why why would you never embrace him like what's so wrong is, is it because he he was Feder Federer's rival, and you were supporting Federer, and like, and, and that he was just so annoying in the way he re- retrieves all the balls and never stops fighting. I, I feel I find him to be almost inhuman, like in his physicality and his like you know his OCD perfection. Right. You know, it's like like most players, even the the all time greats, seem to show a little bit more. I don't know, humanity. And they show the humanity in those moments when they're suffering. You know, Rafa talks about his suffering, but I think Rafa's suffering is just like the effort, the maximum effort all the time and how that must feel physically for him to like put his body through that all the time. But he doesn't really have, it feels like he doesn't have dips. You know, it feels like he's just, he's relentless. He's, and you know, and if you are rooting for Denis Shapovalov or... Daniil Medvedev in these big matches. Um, who did he beat in this? He beat uh, Berrettini in the semis. Berrettini is a guy I haven't been able to really get that excited about, but, you know, I was pulling for him in that match, and it just feels like, fuck, everybody is outclassed in some way. And he'll he'll find and exploit the weakness, and I think that's part of why he's so insanely good. You know, like, with Shapovalov, he was, he was on the ropes. He was physically toast. He didn't have anything in the tank, and he knew that this guy on the other end of the court would implode if he just kept the ball in play and made him 
you know, win the match and Dennis couldn't do it. Dennis freaked out, was, you know, getting upset about time violations that he thought should have been called and weren't called and just completely lost his cool and melt, you know, melted down. Whatever the situation, he finds an answer. And I just, I find that exhausting. I find his ticks exhausting. I don't like how the the pace of play is so slow. And he's, and I don't like his grunt. And you know, he's like, he's just like got that like. There's a lot here. He's just like so animalistic. You know, like I, I can admire some physical men and find them beautiful, but like Rafa, I don't know. I really, I was thinking about it because I think you know, Sitsi Pass is my guy. I like a little touch of the feminine, a little. You know, a little more topspin, a little more grace, you know, just some softness, you know? I see that. I see that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, he, he's quite a masculine man. You know, I think another part of it is, um, and this is this has been sort of touted uh, recently, you know, of the big three, he might be the least technically talented. Tennis player, or the least beautiful of the tennis players in terms of his technique and ability. Um, and so, how well, how does he win more slams than the others? He does it through aggression and relentlessness and brute force, you know, the bull, brute force. Um, yeah, and that, that you can maybe admire that, but I can, I can see how. You know the the artistry, maybe, or the beauty and grace of a of a different type of player is um, more attractive to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, I, I do. I will acknowledge though that I think it's almost selling him short to only focus on his brutishness because, as I was saying, like I think he's probably one of the greatest problem solvers you know, and thinkers on the court. He's, he's been relentless in his, in his ability to improve his game. You know, this is something the commentators are talking mm. about. I've been watching him longer than I have. It's like, you know, his he backhand, had, his backhand wasn't as good um, earlier in his career. And now it's a very good, very good shot. Like his forehand is obviously devastating. A weapon. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weapon. Yeah. But the backhand wasn't always such. Right. And the serve, I think his serve was pretty attackable earlier on and he's tinkered with it and changed it and reworked it. And he was not very competent at net in the early part of his career and he worked on it and he won Wimbledon. I mean, he he's he's smart as a player. He's he knows he knows how to problem solve his way through matches, even when he's not at his best in those very, very rare instances. He shows a chink of weak, you know, a chink in the armor that tiny bit of weakness. So there's not much to criticize. It it really does come down to aesthetic preference. And that's, you know, it's weird when it's like individuals, like I find, you know, the, the way the crowd was like, so behind him, you know, it's, I mean, it would be the same thing for Roger Novak's a more complicated figure, obviously at this point, but like, there's something kind of cultish when people get so obsessed with one person. And I feel like if I'm going to, get that excited about one person it, there is it comes down to like a sort of yeah, it's just a flavor of attraction it's just it's hard to explain why i'm more drawn to one person than another it's like would i would i rather be friends with Pass or federer i don't know I, I don't know if we'd have anything to talk about <laughs> but it's like you know you just see somebody and you find you, there's like an affinity there's something in the way they move and you know and play that 
you can relate to. When I see Rafa, it's like he just, yeah, he 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 really doesn't like. He almost like embodies like you know like God on on Earth in his physique. You know, he's like he's so sculpted and so strong. I think I'm probably you know I'm probably intimidated by him in a way. The whole thing, the whole Rafa thing, is just a little much for me. Is what I'm saying. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> to to move on um, to like a different kind of player, because Rafa is that that brute force. And, um, to someone who maybe is more of a technical master, um, let's talk about Ash Barty because mm. the comparisons to Federer, I think, with her game and the deep respect and appreciation um, from all the other players who have congratulated her. Um, she just seems to have such um, love for her and her game and how wonderfully executed and complete, you know. There isn't a shot on the tennis court that Ash Barty can't play. Mm-hmm. Uh, her serve, she's only uh, 1.65 centimetres. It's five, five foot five inches. Yeah, and she has a dominant serve. Uh, and her serve is, is big and it's, the placement is even better. She's got a wicked forehand. She used the uh, two-handed backhand a bit more, but her slice, which is she's known for, was even better this tournament. You know, it's a little lower and it cuts more and it's deeper. Um, it, it's more knife-like. It wasn't a player that could touch her. Collins was the only one who came close. Uh, she got she got 5-1 yep. in the second set. And Collins had a great tournament. Um, totally different kind of a player, more of a rougher type of a player. But um, Ash Barty, head and shoulders above any other player in the women's game at the moment. Obviously, the caveats there are that Serena Williams is out injured and not in her prime anymore. But um, gosh, she was she was great to. I mean, I, I I know you know you and Alex and to a lesser extent me have the this criticism that she doesn't show a lot of emotion on the court. I'd like to address that at some point because okay in some paintings and poetry done about Ash Barty that I think might help us understand what is interesting about her. Right. But, you know, in terms of the way she plays the game, it's very beautiful, very beautiful style, all-court, all all-court player. Yeah, um, I completely agree. She's a superior tennis player to everybody else, uh, on you know, in the WTA right now, I think. There's much to like about her game and the artistry she displays on the regular. And yet I don't find myself rooting for her either. So I do think, I mean, I will, I mean, I will concede that they're, you know, the rules of attraction are different with, you know, for men and women for, for me, you know, like in terms of like who I'm, who I'm attracted to as, as personalities, uh, not just players, you know, play style does factor in. And I think there's a lot to be attracted to in Ash's play style. And yeah, I, I tend to get hung up on the, on the kind of coolness, the, the lack of emotion, the, the lack of energy, you know, I find that the matches, I mean, it's, it's really hard to evaluate in this particular tournament because she kind of steamrolled everybody. She didn't drop a set. She had that, you know, yeah. Collins was the only one to even ask the question and get close like legitimately close to taking a set from her. And she still, she was up to the task and just kind of regained control and, you know, took it to a tie break and won the tie break easily. So, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of drama. We were talking about how 
the women's tournament didn't seem to have that same level of charge charge that the men's did this year the the men for you know it uh, seemingly always coming down to kind of the same set of guys whereas the women you know you get a lot of ran, you know a lot of variation from tournament to tournament a lot of first time grand slam winners first time semifinalists uh you know she was she just she's shown that she's like really uh you know on a different level and she's you know she's potentially like i could see her winning a calendar slam like i could see her racking up tournaments left and right like it's like it seems like every element of her game has clicked you know exactly into place and there aren't weaknesses left to exploit or at least not for the for the for the field it seems like there just isn't as much left, you know, she, she hadn't lost. I don't think she lost a match all year. Right. She, she won the, the warm up tournament she played coming in. Uh, yeah, she, she didn't lose. Um, she, she, she skipped Sydney in the end. She, she's going to play two. She only played Adelaide. That's right. Wait, do you, do you want to tell me about, cause I saw the, uh, the painting that you shared and I, I like mm. briefly looked at that guy's page. Would you like to talk about that? Cause I think it's a really striking piece of art and, um, I would love to, to hear that perspective. Well, we might've talked about this brief, briefly before, but Mark Shorter, um, who was a tennis junior himself, but he's more known in Australia as an artist, um, has done a series of paintings of tennis players, close-ups close up um so he's done pat cash's legs i think calf muscles and this is ash Barty's fist mm. and uh this put she every time she wins a point mark notices uh she gives a, just a little little fist pump you know and that's it because she's such a contained contained player and there's um there's a poem he references um called called making a fist in this article that he's um hmm. he's written a, he works with david leinbarger who writes poetry and he's a tennis player himself in the u.s and together they collaborate shorter doing the um the paintings and leinbarger doing the um the poetry to you know really create a poetic um appreciation of of uh of tennis players and so I think, you know, if we, if we look at this painting and we read the poem, yeah, I, I like that, you know, it's right up our alley, isn't it, David? Like, um, tennis enthusiasts, other, other tennis tragics that, um, that, yeah, they try and, um, find the, find the beauty and the nuance. Yeah. The, the, the deeper meaning. The deeper meaning. Yeah. The philosophical in it all. Right the the poetry and that the you know i i am like i am really taken by this this image it's it's like the fist is you know it's like in this like kind of deep crimson red Mm. you know it's it's so it's like got this really visceral quality and strength but you can also like i can recognize it as ash's arm yeah yeah, you're right You, you the bicep and the shoulder um it's it's Ash's arm. Ash's um, strong, very strong arm. Yeah, she is a she's an incredibly strong, small person. I mean, <laughs> for five five foot five, uh, however many centimeters. She would say, I- "I've heard her say, you know, come on, I'm not that short," and like um, I can relate because I'm only an inch taller than than Ash, and she's she plays in the women's game, and you know. Um, 
tennis players tend to be taller than the, than the average of the population. So right. she would say, hey, I'm actually not that short. I'm just a normal, normal height here and wouldn't want to, you know, have her achievements um, boosted by like, oh, and she also is short, kind of a, kind of a commentary. I feel, I, I don't know if it's because women are on average shorter. So you get players who are short and slight who, uh, who win championships. You know, she's not the first five foot five person to, to win a title. Um, but right. That's, that's like right on the average for, for women. And you know, for, for a man that would be around five, nine, five, ten, um, which is my height. And I feel like generally, you know, and it's just a generalization. There's all kinds of statistical distribution at play, but like you don't see a lot of men who are five foot nine winning grand slams. And, and, and I, you know, again, the, I mean, one of the most amazing things about her game is how dominant she is on serve. And, you know, you, you said it exactly. She, she serves hard and she serves creatively and she hits her spots. You know, she, she works the slice in, she, you know, she just, she knows how to control a match front to back and, you know, and it starts with a serve. And so for a player who is, you know, often I think the stereotype is that smaller players who do succeed men or woman, men or women, uh, the success often comes from movement and speed, you know, like that, that's the counter. That's if Alex Demonor ever wins anything and he's six feet tall, you know, it's because he's faster than the other guy and he can get to balls that other people can't. Um, but right. Like that's, I don't know. Demonor was fun to watch this fortnight. Um, he lost to center. I don't, I don't mean to move off Barty. I'm going to stay with it, but, um, you know, it's, it's that energy. Like he, he, there's something there's that, you know, that it, I feel the energy coming out of his body because he puts, there's so much that you get that sense of, of effort coming through this kind of slighter build. Whereas Barty, Barty's got the slider build and she's got all the skill, I mean, and then some, and yet it's, it's so controlled. It's like, so she's got it all boxed in just right. You know, she, she's mm. really, she's masterful. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't been able to, to really get behind her. I mean, maybe, maybe it just takes the, with a lot of players, it takes like one great match against somebody I don't like. <laughs> You know, like, like if she, uh, she beat somebody that I really had, uh, did, you know, disliked on the tour. It's like, I, I have to feel that emotional connection. I have to, I have to want the, the victory yeah. in a deeper way to re to really get, get excited about something. Well, the, the reason why I feel the emotional connection, I think is because I live in Australia, um, you know, and as a, you know, as a member of, um, the left here, and we just, we see, you know, uh, we see how poorly Aboriginal people are treated in the country that should be theirs. Um, and I think as our lives of, um, Aboriginal people fighting for justice here to see, you know, um, an Aboriginal, a proud Aboriginal woman, and she's spoken up about her love and culture, um, during this tournament and before, um, having success and seeing the Aboriginal flag at the, at the, um, in the crowd, you know, and seeing, um, Yvonne Gulagong and Kathy Freeman, who won gold at the Sydney Olympics in the 400 meters, these, you know, really strong Aboriginal women that, that we look up to, um, and especially important for Aboriginal people here. It's just, 
it's just love. It's just, it's very healing to the soul because we, right. we know our government is pretty racist and, uh, you know, of course they try and, you know, claim Ash as being like one of, you know, an Aussie, an Aussie icon, you know, and use her for advertising campaigns or whatever. I mean, that's part of it. And, and Ash buys into that too, but that is a big part of it for me. Um, is what she represents politically, um, in, in this, uh, context of, um, the Australian state. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's, there's a narrative that you're able to latch onto that's meaningful to you personally. So you like, that's, that's your point of attachment, you know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting who we, who we get behind, who we care about. Um, mm. Yeah, um, she's won now on, she's won Grand Slams on all three surfaces, hard clay and grass, mm. and uh, it seems like the career slam is definitely in sight. Well, according to Craig Tizer, her coach, she won't win at the US Open. Why not? Courts are t- too slow? Because, David, of the balls. At the US Open, the men and women use different balls. Okay, it's the only tournament where the balls, uh, um, they're a lighter ball for the women at the US Open. Huh, I did not realize that. Um, and this might explain I, I, why Raducanu and Fernandez had success. I, I was just thinking about this. Why was it so crazy, the US Open, um, in 2021? Craig Tizer believes that unless the balls are changed to the regular balls, that everyone else uses and not the other time not not to say that balls don't change tournament to tournament but but his his analysis is that the women only balls in the u.s open that are lighter than the men's is a serious disadvantage to the way ash plays and i don't understand quite the mechanics of why that is but um he's quite against that and and for that he reckons unless it doesn't unless it changes ash is not going to win the u.s open which is a crazy thing to say. She's she's easily <laughs> the most dominant player in the women's game at the moment. She's been number one for so long now, um, partly due to COVID, but also because she's won three Grand Slams yeah. now. I, I can no longer make a case for Sophia Kennan being the real number one. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's abundantly clear that, that uh, Barty deserves that ranking. Um, but yeah, I... First of all, I I thought I did know that they use different balls for men and women, but I thought that was the the standard that they use slightly different balls, not the exception. So, um, a, a little taste of uh, American exceptionalism at play. Um, but yeah, I, I ha- also had a note about uh, Fernandez losing in round one and Raducanu in the second, um, and uh, hadn't hadn't really considered that that the conditions might have had something to do with how how unusual those results were and how chaotic uh that tournament was by by comparison maybe those maybe those balls suit fernandez and radicani better they can hit through they can hit them harder and uh they don't sail on them well no does that make sense if they're a lighter ball i don't know i don't know enough about the mechanics of these things you know they're i i I love when sometimes you know you get a commentator feed where they start talking about like the the materials used in in string composition you know pass the gut string and the poly strings and you're getting more bite and then yeah. i i just wish i could understand the what it is that these professionals are able to detect you know like 
Like they could touch, they can touch the strings with their, the palm of their hand, like just bounce their hand off of the string and know if the tension is right. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's so far beyond my comprehension. You know, I love, I love those little details. I think my only um, real understanding is uh, the lower the string tension, the more trampoline effect you get. So you can get a bit more pop. Um, but you also lose control, and if you have a tighter string tension, then you sacrifice some of that trampoline effect, but you get more control. Right. Oh, we didn't talk about how um, our tennis tragic uh, sleeper picks to win the tournament, um, Robin Anderson and uh, and uh, Marco Trungaliti both lost in the first round. You know, heartbreaking upsets. Um, you know, our reputation in tatters. Furthermore. We got our, was that our first block, Matt? Might have been our first block. I think what happened was like Robin Anderson, we, we tagged her on our um, draw show artwork and we mentioned her a few times um, with our predictions. I don't know why she blocked us because we're tennis fans and we were rooting for her, you know, and we, we talked about her college career and how she really deserved that wild card. Yeah. I get the sense that she thought we were making fun of her by predicting her to win the tournament when she's clearly um, a rank outsider. Um, so yeah, she, that, that's unfortunate. But hopefully we can win her back one day. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I yeah. And as as for Trungaliti, she he, he he did make I don't know who his first round opponent was, but Francis Tiafo. He, he took Tiafo to five sets. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he had so that was good. He had some of the best tennis fashion of the tournament. Uh, my new favorite alt brand Lala. I've already bought my first Lala athletic wear. Um, so yeah, Trangolitti, the big time winner. Um, and Robin Anderson took a set off of Samantha Stozer in Samantha Stozer's last win as a professional singles player. So that is something Robin Anderson can be proud of, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know that she knew we were predicting her to win the tournament, but we put, you know, like I, the album art has an ironic tinge you know we we're, we're poking fun a little bit it's a little collage i'm trying to you know represent the the wild strange humanity sometimes i think they're like a little too cute and ironic and like not serious enough you know like because everybody like i do take tennis very seriously and i i don't want people to look at that album art and think like what is it just making a, like a dumb joke about you know, birds or something? Um, but when I go back and look through the the like history of album art covers that we've done over the years, they all tell a story. Like I, I get yeah. an impression of I, I'm reminded of what's going on at the time. And you know I, I kind of suspect that not many people actually see them because I don't think they necessarily go through to the podcast feed and. Um, you know, like we have like seven Instagram followers or something. Uh, it's more than that. We get like seven likes a post. <laughs> and uh, usually one of those is you, one of those is me. And, um, but like if we ever are able to get that audience, I feel like that's the sort of thing that will have value for people. You know, it's like, it's just like a little, it's a story in a different form, I think. And um, they're a lot of fun to do, even though they take way too much time. Yeah. Um, just to correct you there, we have uh, 78 followers, um, 
and we sometimes get, you know, a few more likes than that. But yeah, if you want to, you know, dear listeners, um, if, if you want a serious tennis podcast, listen to The Tennis Podcast, which is very good. Yeah. And even though they, they are funny as well, they can be funny and they can be lighthearted and they can get into politics and fashion like we do, um, that is where you, you want to go to get your professional take. We are, um, yeah, we, we, we experiment with the form and I think there's nothing wrong with that. What we're doing. Yeah, I think it's it's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, someday we'll be we'll be cult tennis podcast heroes. Yeah, ex- accepting our <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I couldn't give a straight face. Accepting our, you know, um, Grand Slam trophy for the tennis podcast no the uh the like um what do you call it when somebody is admitted to a hall of fame when, we, when the tennis podcast hall of fame uh chooses to honor us and uh our legacy you know invites us to enter the pantheon podcasts right specifically tennis podcasts i don't mean like yes. the tennis podcast the tennis podcast their hall of fame I mean, the hall of fame for all tennis podcasts because there are quite a few of them out there right now Follow, follow a bunch of them on Instagram. Occasionally get messages from other people with kind of like scrappy up-and-coming tennis podcasts, you know, just trying to like exchange some notes. Right. It's the backhanded... Um, yeah, Passing Shot passing is another shot. one. It's like a couple in the UK. Um, I got... Who was it that reached out recently? Um, just Slap. Just slap tennis. Just slap. Um, they said here, like, I'll read you a little bit of the exchange. Um, first of all, I said, hello, fellow tennis podcaster. And uh, just slap tennis said, congrats on your success, man. Keep up the good work. Aww. And I said, not sure I'd categorize it as success, but the project <laughs> is a lot of fun. Have you listened? <laughs> um, and he said, ha, 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 no, it's a success. We've tuned in and you guys got a good thing going. Keep it up. Um, and you know we exchanged some strategy tips it says keep it up it's all about the passion you guys are doing a great job maybe try hitting more people up it couldn't hurt so thanks thanks a lot just slap I appreciate that that is that is lovely it was really nice they do like video podcast stuff too so like all their stuff is on YouTube and I feel like they've like gotten some like low ranked players onto their pod for chats, which is pretty cool. So they're, they're hustling and they're doing it. But yeah, uh, check it out. Great. We'll do. The Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com. And our Instagram is at tennistragicpod.com.